Welcome to Rogue Bogues Basketball Podcast, Episode 8. Myself and the big fella Mike, how's it going? Bogues, how you doing, brother? Everything's good on my end. How are you doing? Oh, we're doing all right. My home state just went into a five-day lockdown, so just a quick prerequisite of the COVID shit going on in the world. So that'll be interesting with the Australian Open tennis still kind of being deemed essential to run in the background. So crazy times out here, not for the faint-hearted. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's affecting everywhere, man. It's a crazy, it's a crazy deal, right? It is, it is. But um, let's get rolling. We, I mean, is this one of the closest years you've seen in, in a long time? I mean, COVID has obviously played a part. Home courts are not that important anymore. The home and home schedule, obviously, with teams flying into a city, they play, you know, usually two games in three nights or whatever it is. But you look at the East and the West and it's it's pretty much wide open bar maybe two or three teams that can can make that playoff hunt. And then obviously, when you factor in the the playing games, essentially the top 10 is essentially going into the playoffs. Um, it's It's been pretty close. Yeah, you're right. Especially with, like you said, the 10 teams in both, in both conferences, it just makes everything a lot closer. There's a couple of teams on the bottom, one or two on each, in each conference, but it, it's sort of open up for everybody. I mean, we were talking about Dallas struggling. I mean, they're only eight and a half out of the, pl- of the fir- one spot, but they're a game out of 10 and they're, you know, I mean, there, there's so many teams that just sort of can make runs and, you know, a good week and they're right back in it. And like you said, you know, without the home court advantage, it's it's really throwing everybody for a loop. Yeah, and that's exactly it. Like a two or three game win streak, and you know, for some teams, you look at maybe the Chicago Bulls. They can they can you know win two or three straight games. They go from eleventh to seventh. You know, um, you look at the Western Conference, and you got someone like Sacramento who are twelve and twelve right now, and, and they they win four straight, and they can get as high as fifth. <laughs> you know, it's just it is wide open. I mean, I've got it. All the way down to, like we said, Minnesota. You can put a line through Oklahoma City will battle, but I probably I probably put a line through them. Mm-hmm. And then Detroit and Washington, you can put a line through. But other than that, Orlando's been banged up a little bit lately. It's, it's pretty wide open on both sides. So it's been it's been fun to watch as far as that goes. Because I mean, for sports betters out there and people that try to gamble on the NBA, this is probably not the season you want to be doing that. Yeah, it, it's it's very. It, I mean, it's something that's just not. It's it, there's no there's no guarantees when you when you're betting on anybody. And I think, you know, with what's going on with COVID and all this other stuff, I think that, you know, it'll be a little lethargic throughout the regular season. And then, you know, I think the playoffs would be pretty exciting, if, if anything at all. Do you think the seeding's that important going into this, this year's playoffs? I really don't. I mean, I, I really don't. I can't speak for everybody, but without home court advantage, I mean, the only difference between the bubble and not bubble is the tra- you got to travel a little bit, but... I think that without home court advantage, without really any type of fans or, and whatnot, I I don't think the seating is going to affect it much, to be honest, like it did in the past. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I really don't think it's going to impact that much. I mean, I don't think you'll see a one versus eight upset or anything like that. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. But besides, like, a, I think most of the playoff series are going to be wide open. Yeah, everything besides probably one and eight, you're right. I think two, seven, three, six, four, five. I mean, they're all going to end up being coin flips. And like I spoke about on episode seven, I think. You know, it really hurts a team like the Utah Jazz who have an unbelievable home court that's kind of intimidating and loud and obnoxious. And I think it's going to really affect them. They're going to be they're going to be a higher seed with all this 
kind of added pressure without home support. I mean, they could be potentially a team that if they are a one, you know, potentially they could get they get knocked out just based on everything going on. So that'll be fun to watch. We had some news this week, kind of off the court. Mark Cuban cancelled the national anthem. So this has been a, a pretty divisive issue, at least what for what now, five or six years following on from, from Kaepernick and, and what happened with the NFL. For me, it's been interesting to watch from afar. One thing I, I, I figured from the Mavs, when I, when I played there, Pro, I, I noticed that a few players on the team, well, not a few, everyone on the team when we had the national anthem put their hands on their hearts, right? So, being an international guy, I noticed that, you know, Dirk and JJ and a few other guys also had their hand on their heart, which I kind of found a little bit strange just because they're, you know, Dirk's German and JJ's um, obviously from from down south and in Puerto Rico. So I think I asked Dirk, I said, man, what's the deal? Like, how come, you know, you put your hand on your heart for the for the American National Anthem? And he just said, when he first came in the league, Cuban had a thing. I don't know what year it would have been, early 2000s, where he, he basically told the whole team, you, you, when you stand for the anthem, you need to put your hand on your heart. Now, I don't know if that was because it was Dallas, Texas, or, you know, we do know Mark was more on the patriotic side of things early in his NBA tenure with um, his support for the troops, which he still does to this day, probably not as much, but um, he was really involved in that. So, I found that the only reason I bring this up is, is because I found, found it unique that you know, the transition of, of, of Cuban's kind of opinion on it has completely flipped. And for anyone who doesn't know, they basically didn't play the national anthem um, and didn't tell anyone and just kind of let it slide and a few media people picked it up and it, it's kind of grown its own legs and became a, a political issue now. So, have you have you seen all that? You know, Bogues, it's very, it just surprised me to hear about it um, just because, like you said, he, he was all into the military, all into, you know, patriotism love the national anthem uh actually one game uh every year at home they have like a military night where he would talk to all the season ticket holders that sit courtside to give up their seats for military and men and women and you know would spend hours you know after the game taking pictures and signing autographs and hanging out and you know it's just such a big thing um a big part of you know, I know it was something that was like really dear to his heart, how he did things like that. And it just surprised me just because of, I don't know him all that well. I worked for him and, and all that, but like, it just seemed to me that he was very much into it. But, you know, and then in like 2018, when the Kaepernick stuff was really getting, you know, pretty popular, um, I, I know he spoke up and said that, look, he'll, you know, he want, he still really believes in the national anthem and he's going to play it and, you know, he'll support players that don't stand for it. So... I was just that that made me a little bit sort of shocked that he would sort of take it off the table, you know, instead of giving people the option to either stand or 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 kneel or whatnot. It was a surprising to do. Uh, usually, I, I just thought that they would give him people that option. Well, especially in Texas, <laughs> it's a weird spot. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I've only lived here like seven years, but you could tell it's. You know, a lot of people, it's big in the state, national anthem, patriotism, you know, they're, they're very much into, you know, into police, into the military. So, it's just a big thing, you know, in the community and a, a big thing, in, you know, statewide. And it was just strange that it just took it off the table, but we're just sort of living in different times, man. Definitely. I think, and I think Cuban probably is more of a guy that goes with the flow of public sentiment and probably thought that that was the right decision. And back in the day, it was the opposite. When David Stern was the commissioner of the league, I still remember that there was no fucking around during the anthem. Like it was, I don't know if you remember it when you kind of started in the NBA. I'm sure you'd know it from from being involved with with um, training guys and whatnot. But once you're officially involved in an official capacity with the team, but it was you, you basically you couldn't stretch during the national anthem. Like it was to a point where if you were 
kind of like half half stretching while it was going on. You'd get a you get a warning from the league from David Stern, and the next time you did it, you get a fine. It even got so crazy where you, you weren't allowed to chew gum during the national anthem when I first got in the league, and I kind of found it crazy because number one in Australia and, and most most countries in the world, it's one of the only places the US where national anthem is played during before sporting events that don't involve two countries. So we only have ever played in Australia when we're playing an international game. Both countries mm-hmm. play their anthem where the, the NBA and the NFL is a little bit different. But I found it really strange because it was strict. Like you were like, you don't mess around during the anthem because Stern's going to send you a fine, right? I'll find the team or I'll find you. So it's just interesting the shift in dynamic from from back then to now where it's um, completely turned on its head. And I mean, that's a, it's a divisive issue. Everyone has a different opinion on it. I just, I just found it kind of an interesting topic to discuss and another follow-up I'll have from that is I've got real experiences with it so in 2000 and I think it was the year we lost to the Cavs it was 15-16 I had a routine where so basically once you go out for your warm-up the 20 minutes is on the clock you do your layup lines then it goes down to about 12 minutes everyone does their um their stretching or their own shooting or their band work you'll see guys on the NBA courts with those stretch bands whatever you want to do then we meet again when there's five minutes left on the clock till tip off and you do layup lines and then that ends at about two minutes so at that two minutes, my routine every game for like the last five, six years in the NBA was I'd shoot two free throws and then bust out to the locker room and, and take a whiz and go to go do a piss. And so what was happening is by the time I got to the locker room, especially at a home arena, by the time I went to the bathroom, washed my hands, the anthem was already playing, right? So I'd miss I'd miss the mm-hmm. anthem. So the first couple of times I'd try to get back on the court, the security would stop me and say, well, the anthem's going, just let it finish and then go out. So I just started waiting in the locker room for it to end and then would come back out. So I used to do that a lot. Pretty much every game was kind of like a butterflies thing or just felt like if I, if I do a piss before I go out, I feel lighter, I just feel like I needed to get it out because it was the last chance till halftime. And then um, Harrison Barnes used to do the same thing, right? So we'd be back there mm-hmm. and no one ever said anything. No one noticed, no one really cared. And then we get to the NBA finals that year. We play game one. We did it, same routine. We get a, a letter from uh, Adam Silver in the NBA saying, if Harrison Barnes and Andrew Bogut aren't, lined up for the anthem for game two, we're going to fine them both $25,000. Oh, wow. So, I've had I've had actual experiences with this. And look, we did it for game two because like Bob Myers, the GM, was freaking out like, you guys need to stand for the anthem. We're like, well, shit, like this has been our routine for four years. No one's ever said anything. And now, because it's the finals, what we're supposed to change that. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, we, we did it in game two. I, I think myself and Harrison didn't play well. We won. And then- the rest of the series, we just said we're staying with our routine, like we're not changing it, and, and they never find us. But um, yeah, yeah, it's just interesting when you when you factor in those things. That was only four or five years ago. That now it's it's basically you can kneel, and you can not stand, you can stand in the back, you can not play the anthem. So it's just it's just an interesting one that I guess with public sentiment and politics in sports, it's completely you know change your perception of it all. Bogues, it's just a it's just sort of a precedent that's been set forever. You know, with U.S. sporting events, hockey, baseball, basketball, football, college, um, college sports as well. And it's just something that people are used to. Now, you know, maybe some people's views have changed about what they what want to do to salute the anthem or not. But I, I just think you have to give people an option. I, I don't really I don't agree with not giving them an option. You know, I don't stand behind it. I don't agree with it. But like if somebody's like I'm big into the national anthem, I'm big into, you know, supporting military, supporting police and things. And if somebody doesn't, I don't see that as like unpatriotic or disrespectful. I just see it as what what they're going to do. But I, I just think by saying that, hey, look, we're just going to shut this off. That's when I think people are going to there's a lot of brushback. I think the league, I think they took a big hit financially and viewership with their political views on some things and how they handled some things in the past few years. And I think like them speaking out and saying, hey, 
one team doesn't speak for the league and everybody's going to be, you know, sort of celebrating this. I, I think it's, I think it's a good move by the league just to say, Hey, look, like if we have to have meetings on it, we'll have meetings on it, but we, we can't do this. Cause I, I think that would be a, I think that would be a big hit for them if they decided to go forward with this and, and saying that you know, like, we don't have to play national anthem. And, you know, I just don't think that the, you know, the country's ready for that yet. And, and I think that they sort of have to go back to the drawing board on that if they want to think about doing something different. But I mean, look, like if I'm another country, if I'm, you know, if I'm another country at a sporting event, they have a national anthem, I'm going to just respect it and support it and just go, you know, and ju- it is what it is. If you want to stand, if you want to sit, I just think it's your option. But I think taking away that option, look, anybody's decision is there's two things. There's your intent and the perception. And I think if people support you and they have the same beliefs as you, they don't care about what the perception is. They just care about your intent. Now, if people are in the middle or on the fence or don't agree with you already, now they don't care what your intent is. It's just their perception and and they're just going to go against you anyway. So I just think that like taking away that option is going to rub people the wrong way. And like I said, I think you should just respect people's opinion if they want to if you want to salute the flag or you don't want to salute the flag and, you know, and then just go with it. It's only two minutes. It's not a big deal. Yeah. And that's what you get when I guess there's that argument, which is a whole different conversation of politics and sports. And I'm kind of in the boat of not mixing those two together. That's just always been kind of my outlet was watching sports and getting immersed in the battle of, you know, Luka Doncic is on fire or damn, Bogut just missed that dunk. What are you doing? Whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I, I felt like, I feel like as a young fella and teenager and then even following sports while while I was actually playing in it, it was the way, it was a way to lose yourself from everyday life, in my opinion. So, right. whether you're a truck driver or whatever you are, you get to be immersed for two hours where you don't have to get all those perils of the world. But now, you know, it's 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 in your face in all different kinds of sports. There's all there's a lot of activism and and there's an argument also from from their their side of things, well, we're gonna get more eyeballs if we do it during the game and we're going to get our message across and people are going to really hear our voices whatever the issue is right so i understand the argument from both points but i'm in the i'm in the camp of enjoying that two hours of sport if you want to promote it before and after i got no issue with it and you want to you want to do some things for certain causes no issue but i feel like with everything going on in the world we see we just see politics and and, and different things railed into us no matter where we look these yeah, days. Yeah, it's too much. Yeah, so it's just like, and Bill Burr, um, he was on Conan. I was looking up the clip and I was going to try to play it, but I, I didn't manage to get it all recorded from YouTube. But Bill Burr was on Conan a number of years ago and he was talking about getting kind of charities out of sports to an extent because he was talking about like you're in the middle of the fifth inning and all of a sudden, you know, there's something that comes up for, for cancer or, or, or whatever it is. And it sounded harsh at the time, but once you heard out his point, he's like, look, I'm trying to get immersed in, in this game and, and block out the rest of the world for these two hours i don't want to then feel bad like i'm aware there's cancer in the world and we get it and and it was kind of a, an interesting point that i always kind of related to from a from a comedian of all people where he was just like you know we, we just give me give me my two hours to tune out <laughs> and then, then we can get back on as an athlete bogues do you, do you did you feel as though playing the national anthem i know you're from obviously from another country but do you did you feel as though the national anthem is politicizing anything or do you just think it's just another couple of minutes, just sort of part of your routine before, pre, you know, in pregame. Well, it's a hard one because there's a lot of um, guys in that locker room that feel like they're not, you know, a lot of African-Americans especially that feel like that does not represent them because they feel like they're still a, a minority 
and, and, and all that kind of stuff that goes with it that we've heard. So, I understand that point of view, but my, my thing would be just don't don't come out for it. I think if you don't want to do that, just don't come out for it. The kneeling thing, I think, is a tough one because it's, it's in your face and then it creates that mm-hmm. divisiveness of people either love that or hate it, right? If you don't come out for it, I think it's more yeah. like, oh, I didn't come out. All right, cool. Like that's that's their decision. But when it's when it's that in your face, I think it then becomes a, a divisive issue where you ca- you can't be on the fence. You either hate it or you love it, right? For me personally, it was wasn't the national anthem of my country, but pro man, I made a hundred million dollars playing the sport that I love growing up. I mean, for me, it was kind yeah. of the least I could do was stand for the anthem, right? You know, um, the NBA provided me with everything that I have and America to an extent. So you know, that was it was a hard was always a hard one for me as far as that went, but. I was always taught whether we're going playing in Greece or Italy or the US was always to respect another country's uh, national anthem and look up, do I know the historical significance and all the details of it when I go to every country? Probably not, but I was just always taught, mm-hmm. you know, the Australian anthem's played, you stand up, you sing along, and then if someone else's country's, you know, like New Zealand, when we play them, the haka, we stand and, and give them the respect to perform their, their kind of wartime dance. Um, and that's just something that, yeah, I, I guess if it was me in the NBA today, it would probably be controversial, right, to say that. Um, but that's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah, and then you get into it like, all right, so – are you going to have just one team out there, you know, that wants to, you know, like in a regular game, you have one team that's out there. Do you have it? And then one team doesn't because they're in unison. But what if you have like four players out there and then and other teams out there? It looks bad too. Like if there's only like two players out or four players out, but you know how players are. If the rest of the players aren't going to, you know, going to do it, probably. they're not going to do it. I think it's happened. Was it football or base? I think it was football. Wasn't there a player that came out of the tunnel and stood for the anthem when when all of the NFL players were boycotting, and then that guy was labelled as he's against the cause and he's all that? And I, I don't think it's not an all in type thing. You can you can respect the national anthem of any country. Let's say the USA, you can respect it and stand for it. And also, no, there's an issue with with you know racism, sexism, and, and all those different kinds of things. You, you don't doesn't mean you're one or the other. And I think that's where it became. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's become divisive in my opinion. It was like, oh, he's standing for the anthem, that means or she's standing for the anthem, that means Exactly. Therefore the they're, therefore everything that's going on and they're not against it. <laughs> and exactly. It's like if you're against everything that's going on, oh, they must not be against the anthem. It's just like, no. Use your brain. You can you can divide the two and and, and have a opinion and that's, you know, that's kind of what I rail on on social media about team politics. It's like, no, like you can dissect each party individually. They both have pros and cons. It's not an all-in thing, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's just the sad part of where we are as a society. But let's not drum too much on that because we can discuss that all day. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, we'll move on. A small little bombshell. We discussed it a little bit. I, I've heard that um, another COVID take, one similar to the players, one that we broke a couple of weeks ago. But I'm hearing the referees don't really have any restrictions outside of game time, Pro. I think they're uh, free to do as they please from what I've heard. I think they still need to do their testing coming into an arena and all that kind of shit. But as far as once they get back to their hotel rooms, they can they can go out and party. They can go to dinner. They can meet people, bring people to their room and whatnot and vice versa. And that's uh, pretty interesting, right? Now, now Bogues, is it that there's no rule against it? Or there is a rule and they're just saying, fuck off, I'm going to do what I want. I'm not like, sure. I haven't, have- I haven't seen any legislation mm-hmm. as far as what they have. I think the referees have their own union, so that could be a part of it where the union's like, nope, 
Our referees aren't paid where NBA players are. They have jobs outside of refereeing. They have interest, blah, blah, blah. I haven't seen a specific yeah. legislation. I just know I've had a few people tell me that that's the case and I've confirmed it with a few people that there's no real protocol for referees once they get outside of NBA arena confines and, and when they're doing their conditioning and training and all that, they can basically go back to their room and, and they can live an everyday life. But that kind of that's kind yeah. of a slap in the face of, of what, NBA players are now and coaches have to do because the referees are touching the ball, players getting referees' faces, as we know. So, what's the difference, right? They're a big part of it. And yeah, I mean, if they're just going to put two middle fingers up to it when everybody else is trying to hold the line, look, I mean, there's billions of dollars at stake. And if they're just going into it, so like, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want, it's just, just sort of what's going on in everyday life. And just like the players and coaches, you got to hold the line. And they're a big part of this game. Huge part of this game. Huge. Yeah, it's bullshit, man. If that... If that's the case, I mean, shame on them, man. I mean, fuck. And, and look, there's probably, in fairness, the referees probably are some some that are probably still doing the right thing. But um, I can tell you from experience, that, and for people probably might not believe it out there, but referees do go to nightclubs. <laughs> referees do party. We have, uh, as a team, at times ran into them at certain night spots that we ventured to on the road every now and then, and you'd see a referee there, and like, what the hell's going on? So they're, <laughs> they're not they're not little hermits that just. You know, people think referees nerdy. They just don't, you know, they're on their computers all day. At home. No, they they party and they get it in. Some of them definitely enjoy the nightlife and, and, and enjoy the escapades in different cities. So, it is a little bit of a concern. I mean, I just, someone brought it to me, so I thought I'd discuss it. But it, it's like I said, it's if you're going to have all these other rules, you got to you gotta make sure that everyone's carrying the line because one little iota and, and then you get a small little spike and then all of a sudden, Kevin Durant gets pulled out of a, a game halfway through the game <laughs> because, of a, because of a positive test, right? Do you think they're going to have that uh, that high- Line like they had on the players to rat on referees. You don't think you know, you know, you don't think CP and those guys are going to be like you know, monitoring uh restaurants and bars around the around the hotels to make sure there's any uh referee spotted. Shit, you just you get a bad call one game or you get a T and you just fucking make some shit up. I, just, I saw that referee walking out of a strip club, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jeez. but that's that's an interesting one. I mean, I, I yeah, like I said, I think you made a great point. Everyone, everyone's got to kind of carry the line and kind of eat a shit sandwich. And I'm not saying it's all referees, but if that's the case, the NBA might want to might want to look at that further. All star game. So there's a bit of sentiment. There's some guys firing up. They don't they don't want to play. They don't want to play in the game. Not that they don't want to play in the game. They don't want the game to even go ahead. Uh, there's been a back a bit of back and forth with that. What's your take? What's exactly going on? I haven't followed it too much. Is it is it is it a financial thing? Is it loosely? Is it a health and safety thing? What's what's the deal? What I heard is it's it's about thirty million dollars in the I believe the TNT deal. It's a thirty million dollar hit for the league. Uh, my people are telling me, uh, I think I read it somewhere as well, that if, you know, if the, the All-Star Games, you know, gives $30 million more revenue at least to the league. And LeBron came out first and then obviously everybody else is going to come out once he's, he comes out and says that, you know, he, he wasn't really too excited about playing it. And you know what? Like, for the most part, I, you know, I don't really... Like I'm not li- lined up with LeBron as you know some some of his takes on things, but I'll tell you what I'm a hundred percent behind it. I I think from all what the players and teams are going through this year, I, I think an All Star game really isn't in anybody's best interest right now. I think let those guys spend that week with their family or or wherever and just recharging. You know, and, and just sort of just get some time for them. I mean, they've been through a lot this year. I know we fuck around and bust balls in the show and everything, but like they have been through a lot. And now to go through an all-star game with no fans anyway, for the most part, and in a big city that, you know, that's been, 
you know, super spreader for the most part too. Like they don't have great numbers. So it's like, I don't think it's the best idea. And I, and, and a lot more players, Damian Willard came out and spoke and a, and a few other players as well. I, I sort of see that sentiment. What about you, Bogues? What, what's your feeling on it? Well, I'm not a big fan of the All-Star game anyway. Like you said, they, they probably don't want to play in it. I don't want to watch it. <laughs> I mean, I'm yeah. more of a basketball purist and most purists generally don't watch the All-Star game and most yeah. People that generally don't watch regular season NBA basketball watch the All-Star game. That's generally how it works and there's a little bit of a crossover there. But yeah, you make a valid point. The All-Star game and the mystique around it is having all these celebs come and having all these – there's a comedy shows and there's comedians coming in and taking the piss, you know, ha- having a joke with players. All that is part of All-Star. So, if you can't do all that anyway, yeah. is there really a point in having the game? And, and yeah, going to a big city, if, if they maybe put it somewhere where they can keep, lock it down and it's not a big event, it's just we're going to play it for TV because we need that $30 million, But the players aren't silly. They know they're not getting much of that $30 million that the NBA is going to get from TNT. The players have, I assume, most of them would have a bonus in their contract Bonuses. that would be all-star game payment. If you make the all-star game, yeah. you get an extra million. Question to you is, can yeah. the NBA then say, okay, well, fuck you guys. If, if there's no all-star game and you guys get voted onto an all-star squad, you technically haven't played in the game, so you don't get those bonuses. I mean, I don't know the legality to it, and I know – I know not only with the teams, Bogues, but also their shoe contracts. A lot of them have it where if you make an all-star game, you get heavily bonused as well. I know some players have million-dollar bonuses as well if you make the all-star team and and, and if you're MVP of the all-star game, there's, there's heavy bonuses in it. I guess that the teams could do that. To be honest, if I was those guys, I'd just sort of negotiate it out, maybe take half the bonus from the team or just to negotiate it out if they're not going to give the full, you know, the full amount by not playing in the game. But I think they should at least name the players and, and just give them the bonuses or, or some type of bonus structure. Hey, look, they've been negotiating, you know, negotiating down on the money for the last year anyway, you know, with COVID and the bubble and this and game checks. I think the players, to be honest with you, if, if you're telling LeBron James, instead of you getting that million dollars, you're getting like 450, I don't think he's going to care all that much. He gets to stay home and get it. It's, he's still an all-star. He still performed during the year. I just think an all-star game's in, in bad taste right now, to be honest with, with every, you know, with what everybody's been through. It just just doesn't seem right to have it, but I'm just some slap dick in a fucking chair right now in, in Dallas, Texas. I'm not, you know, I'm not a big mover and shaker when it comes to uh, decision making in the league. Yeah, we'll watch the space. It'll be interesting to see what, what the league comes up with, whether they, they push ahead. I mean, the, the flip side of it is a first-time All-Star, you know, a potential first-time All-Star. Maybe a bit disappointing from their end, you know, someone that might might not have that opportunity again, someone that probably hasn't made an All-Star team. I think Tobias Harris was one that was in the mix. They're talking about could possibly make it. You know, someone like that who's never made it might not have that opportunity again. That's where it gets a little a little bit kind of all over the place but as you said they could just name name the team and not play the game and also you know you, you send your star players there and if one person on that roster gets gets COVID <laughs> then it'll be hey, both you know what else is a fucking bummer fucking COVID protocol so I mean you know who gives a fuck like you know they'll yeah you're right maybe somebody who might make the all-star game this year may never make it again i get it big deal it's a big thing but you know what so is life and yeah, yeah. there's a lot of people fucking struggling Fair with point. this shit hey we disagreed almost because oh, yeah first we're, time we've got a few listeners out there that say you guys agree on everything it's so annoying but you know it's just the reality of our podcast we're not gonna we're not gonna make this a Stephen a smith versus cowherd or whoever it is to just try and drum up clickbait clicks it's just we're trying to do it naturally yeah i'm not smart enough to do a Stephen a smith deal man i'm you know <laughs> i i gotta keep it simple brother oh, you can yell and scream and just get offended by everything yeah, that's a good point that's a good point and then maybe maybe i should do that just talk over everyone <laughs>
Okay, so we had we had a, a little chat back and forth. Steph Curry is balling at the moment. He has had an unbelievable besides probably the first what maybe week or two, he's his numbers are out of control. He's playing very, very well. It was part of my mindset of picking them in the eight or the ten, just because I thought Steph would have twenty or thirty games uh, where he will do what he's been doing. But we got onto a conversation about I discussed it briefly on on the House of Strauss pod. I think Steph's the best superstar I've ever seen moving off the ball for threes mainly specifically, but just moving off the ball to create, you know, for other guys to be able to slip, give other guys opportunity just with his movement away from the ball. And why is that unique? Because it just doesn't happen today. Superstars generally will not be okay with playing off the ball for long periods of time in a game. And that's just the reality, it's guys will feel insulted by it, coach are hating on me, and most superstars want to either get the assist or, or the score or create the play or be involved in the play. And for a guy like Steph to be okay with going off the ball, I mean, it's how do you, how do you see that? I, I think he's – I don't think there's anyone better in NBA history. There really isn't. I mean, there really isn't. And, and what he does is to not only take himself out of the play, but – he'll take multiple defenders with him. You know, if he passes the ball, cuts through, and then somebody's following him, and then now they got to keep an eye on him. They got to spread the floor even more because that guy can't really help off of him. And it just sort of puts everyone else in a better position. And NBA players, let's be honest, how do they train in the summer? They got some fucking trainer that everything's on the ball. 19 dribbles, spin, step back, you know, juggling 18 fucking tennis balls and all that bullshit. Damian Lillard famously made that. Remember that video he did? Oh, God, it's so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like so making good. fun of all these dudes doing all these crazy drills with tennis rackets and baseballs. He had, I think he had goggles on at one point. <laughs> he was just, you anyway. got to Google that. If, yeah, it's Yeah, if you watching. haven't seen it, Google it. It's it just, it's like a fucking symphony watching him play. And it's just, sometimes you don't sort of see it. You saw it close up. I always loved him as a shooter, as a, you know, as someone who can get to the paint. But it's finishing and all this other stuff on the ball. But the last couple of years, I've really noticed off the ball. And we talk about off the ball players like Reggie Miller or Rip Hamilton or even Clay Thompson. But this guy, I mean, what he can do on and off the ball that impacts the game and makes it easier on his teammates. I mean, he he's not really much of an assist guy, but that's the biggest assist you can give your team. He just takes defenders with him. And what, he, what that does is it allows his other teammates to get easier shots. That player that follows him can't help off of him to help whoever else has the ball. He can't help off of Steph. And he takes one, if not two players with him. And now let's not forget the cut takes defenders with him, but now comes off pin downs on the other side and able to, you know, dribble kick and give it to him and be able to, sh- you know, make a three on the other side or, or get into another pick and roll or, or straight line drive. I mean, for young players that are trying to play the game, that guy, Steph, don't worry about those bullshit fucking 48 footers he takes in pregame. That's not going to get you better. What's going to get you better is watching how Steph plays not only on the ball and gets shots, but also off the ball, the cuts he makes, cuts to the rim, cuts to the other side for pin downs, cuts to the other side, you know, catch it, come off another pick and roll and make a play for somebody or make a play for himself. He's not a huge assist guy. He's not John Stockton. He only averages about six assists a game. But the assists he gives his teammates by spreading the floor, by getting off the ball, impacts the game so much and gives his team so many other open opportunities and better opportunities to score. And even screening. Like he's not a big body, but if he just mm-hmm. goes if he goes to set like a cross screen, you just see his guy panicking because he's like, I can't help off this guy. 
So if Steph got a piece of my man on a cross screen, for instance, just a small piece where I could get a, a little gap to curl for a dunk, I was open because you just knew his guy wasn't going to bump me or to even try to get in my way because we had a lot of decoy plays as well to get him threes that way. But, you know, Draymond, we had, we had a few plays where he'd set a back screen for Draymond. I think we called it um, flyer or higher or something like that. But, um, yeah, and it was like a weak side. It was just basically Steph and, and Draymond at the top of the key and would set a back peak and then come off a pin down. And everyone was so worried about Steph coming out off that second screen for three. They forget about helping on, on Draymond on that back peak and he'd just have dunk, dunk, dunk. And we'd use that as a quick hitter in late late quarter situations and late game situations and almost almost got a bucket out of it. But I mean, the only other guys, I have him as the best point guard moving without the ball of all time. So other people will probably think of other guys you have in there. JJ Redick, Rip Hamilton was notorious at doing a fantastic job of just coming off pin downs. Ray Allen and Reggie, I mean, they're the guys I would think of. You mentioned Devin Harris as far as more of a cutting moving off the ball, but that was more for layups and little floaters. But yeah, Steph at the point guard spot. And, and it's hard to fucking do, man. Like People don't realize like coming off a pin down then coming off a double and then getting tops and then you know, go to the other side, like doing that for even five minutes is a conditioning drill within itself. Yeah. He's an unbelievable shape. He could impact the game in so many different ways. Sometimes you don't just, you just don't notice it. And he's such a low key superstar in the sense that like, you never really hear him bitching about playing off the ball, not getting enough shots, not getting a lot, enough touches. And the guy just sort of impacts the game in so many ways and he controls the game. He doesn't need to take 29 shots to impact the game. He doesn't He doesn't score 30 a game and shoots 28 times a game. I mean, the guy just impacts, gets easy shots, gets easy looks, knows how to make reads, gives it to other people. Like you said, set screens. A lot of times he'll set a back screen. They'll have to switch. He'll get that defender on his back and just sort of like wait on it. And then, I mean, he just, his timing and spacing and being able to just continuously move. I mean, he's, he, he's made huge jumps in his game. You know, I mean, early on, he had the injury issues. You know, he had, he increased his ball handling. He got healthy and he just able to impact the game on and off the ball. The off the ball thing's amazing. And like I said, if, if you're going to study anything on Steph Curry, don't worry about his 48 foot shots, his step backs, his sidesteps impact the game off the ball any young player from 11 years old and up i mean any all my clients all my playing clients that i have i talk to them about steph curry off the ball and how to impact the game off the ball and that's just one thing that young players in this country don't know how to do on a consistent basis and he's just i mean like i said he's one of the best players of all time and he i don't think there's a guy in the league that moves you know covers more space in a 48 minute game than he does no doubt. And I just love the fact that he's happy to do it. You know, like I said earlier, there's there's not many players. You go to your superstar and be like, hey, we're going to put you off the ball for 15, 20 minutes. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen, bro? It's, it's you know, it's not it's just not going to fly. Yeah. They're going to either pout no. or, or not be happy with it. Or And he's, I guess the bonus for Steph is he knows it's going to, most times it's going to come back to him and find him because, you know, teammates have so much confidence in him. But he's willing to do it. And I think then that instills confidence in your teammates to then go and make a play as well at times and, and you see Draymond really being the facilitator for all of that and he's had a hell of a week assist wise and doing the intangibles for him but it's just fun to see a superstar kind of be okay with at times not so much being a decoy but just knowing that him running off the ball is just going to create so much attention that other guys are going to get layups and easy dunks so fun to watch nonetheless we'll continue to watch it and anyone out there like pro said watch those games watch more than just the the crossovers and the step backs, there's, there's more to his game than, than you can kind of see. Moving on, we have uh, the NBL 
quick wrap up for you. So, as I mentioned earlier, the city of Victoria, or the city of Melbourne, Victoria, state of Victoria, has gone into lockdown as of today. It's a five day lockdown. Why is this interesting from NBL point of view? Well, it ends on Wednesday, apparently, could possibly be extended, but Wednesday was the day that most teams were flying in for their mini hub. So, that was the hub that I've spoken about where they have about, I think it's eight or nine games in, in quick succession in Melbourne, funded by the state government. So, there's, there's a big question mark hanging over that. What, what do they do? What happens? Um, it is a fiscal monetary decision for the NBL because they've received money from the state government to run that that hub type tournament, which is a two or three or four week tournament. It's going to be interesting to see what happens because there's, there's, there's indications that the lockdown could potentially extend another five days. And we saw that back in July, August of last year, where the lockdown that was supposed to be two weeks ended up being from you know months on end. I mean, it, it poses a pretty interesting question on whether it goes ahead um, and what the NBL can do. They've done a, a somewhat okay job to this point of playing musical chairs with the hand they're dealt, moving teams around and trying to figure it out on the fly, but this could throw a big spanner in the works for the NBL season. Yeah. With all these sports leagues, you're going to have to have plan B, C, D, E, F, G, H, you know, in your back pocket. But, you know, you're moving around a lot of pieces. There's a lot of money at stake. There's a lot of bodies that you have to move. There's a lot of testing. There's a lot of medical things you got to take care of and procedures like that. I don't, I don't envy those people that have to do that. And with this COVID stuff, it could just come up at the, at the, you know, at the last minute, last second. Like I said, it's not blind, you know, it doesn't see how many points you average. It doesn't see if you're a basketball league or a hockey league or a soccer league. Like it just affects everybody, man. It just, so what do you do you then? Know, it puts so, a- so knowing that, knowing that um, the hub, which is going to happen. So let's say you fly all the teams into that hub. The issue is going to be that once that hub's open and finished, let's say in three weeks' time, that state will be deemed dirty to other states, right? So there'll be border closures most likely. That's what's happening in Australia historically over the last year. So New South Wales will then close their border to Victoria. Queensland will do the same, blah, 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 blah. So then you've got the risk now of these teams that are in Melbourne for that hub now having a quarantine for two weeks. If they can even get back to their home cities – to play the rest of their home and away schedule. So th- that's kind of the problem. The elephant in the room is you don't know, like you said, but is is the right decision to get everyone into a hot spot, get every NBL team into a hot spot next week? Do you think that's a good decision? Yeah, I think it's going to impact that. I think it's going to be a, have a negative impact on it, to be honest. I mean, I don't get paid enough to make a decision like that. It, it's it's really tough. Bose, would you hold off? Would you hold off another few weeks? Can they can they hold one. off another few well, that's weeks? That's a problem. It's yeah. the state government has injected money into that hub, which the NBL obviously mm-hmm. wants to pocket, but Will that then be to the detriment of teams' home and away schedule beyond that? You know, it could it just could cause a tremor effect throughout the whole league? Will, will the season even continue post that? That's the que- there's there's a lot of question marks that pose it, and a lot of people will think, well, you know, you're, you're shitting on what's going on. What's your how do you fix it? I mean, my my thing would would have been to have it in in a place that has kind of tri cities. You know, um, Queensland has you know around around the Brisbane surround areas. You've got Brisbane, Gold Coast, and the Sunshine Coast all within a few hundred kilometers of each other. That to me would have made the most sense because you have one of those cities locked down. You just get get everyone on a bus and move them to that down up into that that next little um, tri-cities um, and, and then you can continue on with the season, kind of like what the Australian World Football League did. So, I guess, yeah, the tough one for, for all this is is that, that money that was offered by the state government potentially has been an all-in at all costs from the NBL to, to have that go ahead and, and that, like you said, 
with COVID, it's going to be hard to figure that out. But I just hope the decision is not going to be solely made on our state governments paying us money to have this tournament, so it's gone on at all costs because it could it could somewhat flatten the season. Yeah, but you know how things are, man. I mean, money makes fools out of a lot of fucking people. To be honest with you, yeah, it is. It, it does, and it's look. It's a league that needs that needs money. You know, it's a league that needs to make some money. So I, I don't. I'm not strongly against making money, but this is like you said. It's just a unique circumstance where going back to your um your point of plan B C D E F. I don't think there was a B C D E F. I think it's 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 all been put together to just. Let's just try to hope for the best so we can get everyone in that hub in Victoria. And I don't think there's been ultimate plans if that can't go forward, if that makes sense. So, I think that's kind of more my my criticism of it. Yeah. I mean, probably, I mean, just seeing ahead and doing what the NBA has done and just can't, you know, postpone a bunch of games. If you have that room in your schedule to be able to do that, even if you have to sort of, you know, hold it up a week, 10 days if teams can't get back to their, you know, in their cities, you might have to do something where they have alternate sites. I don't know. But I think in most of these cases, you could probably postpone some games, push back things if you have the time to do that in your season if with TV contracts and things. But just like all these other leagues, just don't fold it. You just got to push ahead and see what other things that you can do. Maybe try to do the hub the best you can. Just get there if it is a monetary decision. But if you have to postpone games, you got to move things back. Fuck it. Do it. What, what are you waiting on? You know, there's no rush to do anything these days. Yep. Let's be honest. And just quickly, a ladder wrap. So the table stands. I still have Melbourne. They're 6-0 and oh up the top. They've had some injury woes and still haven't looked like losing much throughout the season. They've been playing great basketball. I see them as clear number one. I don't think anyone will, will dethrone them all year. But it's kind of like the NBA in a way. We've got two, three, four, five, six, and potentially seven that are all going to be continue to be in the mix. I think Southeast Melbourne, I don't see being up there. I think they'll be close to the bottom when it all ends. Um, Cairns haven't started off well, and then probably New Zealand. I'd probably, those three, I don't think will have a chance, but I think everyone else, it's wide open. So from this point of view, it's similar to the NBA. I think it's fun to watch, and you kind of don't know who's going to be kind of even in, in playoff contention when it all wraps up. So I guess that from that point of view, it's fun for, for us fans to watch. Moving on to fact or fake news. Have a few good ones this week. First one, would you trust the Greek freak to win you a playoff series more than you would trust Nikola Jokic right now? I'd say fake news for sure. I would right now, you know, Jokic is an elite passer, elite scorer. Uh, you know what you're going to get when you get to him, especially if they try to double him and they try to take him out of his game, he could always find somebody with his passing. I mean, he's the best post scorer in the league by far. I mean, his footwork and his IQ, and you could just trust him. He's not a good defender. I get it, but he's, he's a really smart player and he's an elite in two and in, in three, actually three categories. He's a big time rebounder uh, with Giannis. Can't make free throws consistently, although he's been better in the last couple of weeks. I'll give it to him there. But it just, they, it's just—it's going to be the same old song and dance until he can prove it. I'm not—you know—I understand the MVPs. I understand what he does, but um, until he does it, I, I'm just going to always go with they're going to defend him the same way. They're going to wall him up, and it's just going to be tough for him. And without consistent shooting, consistent moves, consistent free throw shooting, I think it's going to be tough for him. What do you think, folks? Yeah, I'm fake news as well, mainly because of the fact that the playoffs slow down. That would be why. The Greek freak is an unbelievable athlete, one of the best players in the NBA, especially in the regular season. In the playoffs, as we've spoken about many times, the court gets shrunk a lot defensively, it slows down, timeouts, TV timeouts, 
fouls. It's very hard for the Greek freak to play his natural flow of game. Whereas on the flip side, that is the perfect game for Nikola Jokic, where it's slow, it's bump, bump and grind, but at the same time, with his the way he moves, he's not overly athletic. He sees the floor well. Uh, I think it fits into his skill set perfectly in a playoff series. So, I mean, my only thing with Denver is they just need to step it up defensively a little bit and turn that switch a little bit better than they have in the past couple of years. But yeah, I would say fake news. I'll take Jokic in the playoffs, which is an interesting fact of fake news because they're the complete opposite players athletically. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Yeah. You know, you got one guy, which someone actually asked a question, which we'll get to in our Q&A about that. You got one guy that's, you know, not, not moving very fast at all. And you got one other guy that's up and down like a banshee. So, it's a, it's a fun comparison to make. Yeah, for sure. Our next one, fact or fake news. What KG, Kevin Garnett, said about players who played 20 years ago couldn't play today. Is that fact or fake news? Completely fake news. You got to understand that the game 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it was taught differently. The three-point shot, the pace, all those things, they just weren't preparing for it. The three-point shot wasn't as valuable. It wasn't used as a weapon as it, it is today. And when you get guys like a KG, like an MJ, like you know some of these really big-time competitors, they're going to get in a gym and figure it out. Even with Kobe, Kobe was a huge mid-range game guy. He didn't really love the three-point shot. He didn't mind shooting it. But later in his career, especially with analytics and things, the last few years of his career, he upped his three-point shots. He upped the, you know, uh, he upped the threes that he took. He sort of more analytically, he still took his mid-range shots. But I think if you're a competitor and you're a great player, you're going to figure it out. They're going to lock themselves in a gym and just add that extra skill and they'll work on it more. I just don't think that, yeah, if you look at the game back then and you watch it now, of course they can't play. But they're going to prepare for it differently. They didn't prepare for this style back then. So if that was the style, if this style was there back then, they would work on it. They'll prepare for it. The coaches will get them ready. They'll work on it in the summer. I just think that, you know, KG's just speaking like his game versus what they play today. I say fake news. It's a tough one. I I think as far as I agree with your point on elite players figuring it out, and like you said, Kobe would then implement more time on the three-point shot, but- I, I'm I'm one of those guys that hates comparing eras because I just think every era gets better. I, I truly do. I think that you know, 60s, 70s compared to the 90s, no, they couldn't. I don't, I don't think many players could transition, and I think it's going to continue on. So I, I would say almost fact. If you're going 20 years, 20, 25 years, I would say fact. If you're going 10, 15, probably more agree with you, but I, I'd say fact in this one because I just think, yeah, okay, the, the the one or two elites on every team will figure it out, but. As far as that role playing big, like back to the, the day of your Reggie Evans that couldn't do anything really besides screen hit people and, and get a shitload of rebounds, basically couldn't catch a ball. Could they be able to play today? No, because no passing skill set, no no ability to, you know, you can, be, you can be a non-shooting big if you can handle the ball a little bit. So, yeah, I, I would say 20 to 25 years caveat, I would say fact. My comparison, local comparison sort of today. So, Brooke Lopez, right? Burke Lopez was a 99% low post scorer when he got in the league. And I, I understand what you said. In the last 10, you could probably switch it over. But here's a guy who just changed his game because he knew the game changed right under him. Where a guy yeah. like Al Jefferson did, didn't figure it out and didn't, and didn't prepare for that. And he, he just sort of analytics sort of took him out of the NBA. Same thing with Roy Hibbert. But like, I just figure if like the way I w- look at what KG said and compare it, 
I just took those players and put them on rosters today as rookies, as second-year players, and developing, and as these players had to develop into today's game. And yeah, some players would be weeded out, but I think that they, uh, most of the players could adjust. Some definitely will get weeded out, because, like a Reggie Evans. They'd be very, it, it's sort of like, um, what was the kid from Denver, uh, the, the kid that played a lot like Reggie Evans? Um, Fareed. He played, yeah, Fareed. You know, like, yeah, like a Fareed, now. like, <laughs> yeah, he's in China, you know? So I think there are a percentage of players that we weeded out, but I think the players, like the really good players out of the top hundred, I think about 80 to 85 could probably make the adjustment. Probably the, like the lower end guys would be a lot, lot tougher. So KG is basically saying he, he couldn't play today then, right? Yeah, KG said he didn't play today. I guarantee you'll cash that fucking check today, though. <laughs> He'll definitely could play. Come on, man. His game he is could, ridiculous. Sure. That's why, he could definitely that's why play I find he, out of all the people that said it, basically he's seven foot. He's not 6'10", whatever the hell they listed him at. Seven foot, long, can block shots. All right, he didn't have. He didn't really have a three-point shot, but, I mean, he'd be at the five today and just causing a muck in the paint and athletic enough to, to still do what he did. So, yeah, it was kind of interesting. I found it interesting that he was the one guy that said it because I think he's one guy that's kind of multi-transitional uh. generation-wise. He, he could somewhat play in, in, in most of the generations we've seen to today. Without question. He's one of the most skilled players of all time. He definitely could have transitioned into like corner threes and then like getting to the free throw line. Yeah, like LaMarcus kind of. Defense. Like LaMarcus has done. Yeah. Really. LaMarcus Aldridge has done. You know, he was- For sure. For sure. Next one, Zion Williamson will have a better NBA career than Ja Morant. Fact or fake news? You know how I feel about Zion. I, I, I'm going to go- I'm going to go fake news on this. I'm going to go Ja Morant. Right, let's run their numbers. I've got their numbers here real quick before you before you get started. So, Ja Morant, as we talk right now, at 18.3 a game points, 2.3 rebounds, 7.7 assists. His per is 18.87, which is a pretty good number for, for a young fella in the league. And Zion is 23.8 points a game, 7 rebounds, 3 assists, 25.14 per. So... By numbers, you look at Zion's way ahead, but you're still going with Morant, yeah? Yeah, I just think that with popularity and things, that's where it's going to be tough because, you know, I don't think John is ever going to get the love that Zion gets with being the next great player, the next LeBron James or whatever they want to call him. And he's a very good player and he's very effective for, you know, having the body he's got and the lack of sort of real skill that he has. But I mean, he's great finishing around the basket and we know what he can do. With John Morant, just ability to get to the basket, ability to score, ability to change the pace of the game. And as these point guards, they dominate the ball and just could sort of like score well in transition, score well in pick and rolls, can isolate his shooting obviously has to get better. He's like Zion. He's not He's not a very good shooter at this point of his career. And I don't think that's going to get a lot better, but it could probably get a little bit. But he shoots about 80% from the line, which I always articulate like I think that, you know, you could have, if you're a good free throw shooter, eventually you can increase your three-point shooting. I'm not saying he'll turn into Reggie Miller, but I think he can get better with that. I think that they're going to have to win. Not that New Orleans is really winning these days either, but he's got to continue to have Memphis get better, playoff team, win a playoff series, and then you might be able to get in a conversation. I still think that he'll be a much better, not much better, but he'll be a better player, you know, overall at his position than Zion will. What do you think, folks? I think fact, I think... um 
with the way the league's going, he will have to play more of the five. I've been on the five bandwagon, so they almost got to get Adams out of there eventually. He's got to play stretches at the five. He'll still get his numbers at the four, but for them to have a genuine chance to win games, but he's just, he is an imposing presence. I mean, I sent you a shot chart from his game today. He was 12 for 12 and every shot was literally inside the charge circle, but with the, the era of small ball, he's generally going to have someone that's way too undersized guarding him. So that's kind of my mindset of it. I think I think he's just still a physically imposing presence where he'll be able to continue. Okay, he doesn't have a jumper. Playoffs may be a different story, but o- over the course of a regular season, I think his numbers will continue to be better than Morant's. And like I said, they, they just got to figure out a way to get him at that five spot for stretches of the game. But, you know, you look at to look at, let's say, Golden State and having Draymond at the five at times. Draymond's a fantastic defender and is up there with the best of them, but guarding Zion one-on-one on, on the block, even just boxing him out for rebounds is a tough task. So that's kind of what I factor in as far as Zion. Yeah, tell those assholes to say we don't fucking disagree that that's two in one show, just so they know, just for their numbers. <laughs> Orchestrated. On to the Q&A. So a few interesting ones. This one's kind of long-winded. So, hey, Bogut, excellent podcast. Basketball episodes are awesome. Really enjoyed the My Journey Utah episode. Pro is also doing a good job. So that's good. You get a pay rise. Also wanted to say... Very quickly, big fan of your career. I went to watch you play Indiana versus Milwaukee 12 years ago. Wow, a long time. With my buddies and hung out with Charlie Bell in the clubs afterwards. That's my man. Charlie Bell was one of my <laughs> one of my best friends on that team. He used to drive him home a lot when we landed um, late at night because he lived around the corner from me. Still talk to him to this day. So, shout out to Charlie. Hopefully, he's listening. The question, could you talk about some of your rivalries and tough matchups you had personally in the league? For instance, it always looked like you, you and Dwight Howard had a rivalry. Or didn't like each other. Same position, number one picks back to back years, 0405, and both in the East. That was from Danny, Neutral Bay, Sydney. I did have a pretty good rivalry. It wasn't anything that was orchestrated or vocal. It was the simple very fact that Dwight Howard absolutely kicked my ass for probably the first five years of my career. He was an absolute beast in Orlando. And he, he gets a lot of flack now and towards the end of his career when he was with the Lakers the first time around and then Houston and all that. But People don't remember he in, in, he was a problem in Orlando, and they ran a lot of good stuff. They had Rashad Lewis at the four, and they spaced the floor for Dwight's duckings, and he was just such a Zion esque probably, um, but more athletic as far as jumping and a bit longer, but but just brute strength. So I really struggled with him early in my career, and then I think I got the, the upper hand later on, on in my career, where you know I was a bit more uh, kind of stronger, a bit more smarter, and then became a very good defender. And then he didn't really give me any more problems after that. So that was definitely a matchup that was an intense rivalry. Um, the only other one I can think of was I used to get into it with KG a lot, just because of of KG's kind of passion and intensity and antics and I've spoke about that before and I was not one to take shit from guys like that I didn't care if they were a star or not so he was another guy that I, I liked those matchups because it kind of in the course of an NBA season with 82 games you kind of sometimes can lull yourself to sleep and I knew going into those games I needed to bring it and, and, and be ready for the battle so it was kind of a good one yeah I mean those rivalries man I mean those guys that you match up well with and you, you you sort of get hyped up for like how do you do it like pre-game like when you're in the locker room do you what do you think are you just sort of clearing your head and you don't really give a fuck and you're just gonna go at it like it's another game or is that one just sort of special as far as like your preparation and and just sort of getting your hype for the game I think you circle back to what's been successful for you in previous matchups and what hasn't and knowing that, I guess not trying to go too much out of the team concepts with your individual battle, but I think the individual battles sometimes they're fun. Like the the Lillard 
Paul George battle, the OKC battle, where, where he hit that long three. And they, they make the antics and the theater of the NBA, and, and it makes it fun at times. There's a battle within a battle. So many of us have had that throughout our careers. But for me, I, I didn't try to take it personal where I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to, try to score 40 and shoot every shot and then have it be detrimental to your team. But at the same time, I'm going to hold and grab him when I can. I'm going to niggle him. I'm going to try to piss him off and try to get him get a technical foul. And a few times there were games, especially we faced him a couple of times, a couple of years in a row in the playoffs that, you know, he doubled me in the head off the ball a few times on blindside stuff because he was so frustrated, you know, and that's when I knew I was winning the battle. So that's kind of how I handled it. But what about you? Where are your battles? Other assistant coaches on other teams, ball boys? <laughs> Besides cholesterol, um, probably, nah, no no rivalry, man. No rivalry. Probably staying employed. No, but like with Kobe, I guess, I guess that's the biggest one I could talk about, like rivalries that he got ready for individually. Like Tony Allen was a huge rivalry for him because of the fact that he, he told me that besides Battier, he defended him harder than any other player that he had to get ready for. So we 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 broke down his defense in in his tactics probably more than any other player that we did. I mean, obviously Battier was the one who got me the job breaking down his defense on Kobe, but throughout the years, because Tibbs was so good at making Ray uh, Tony Allen the defender that he was, getting him ready for him, and then obviously at the, at, at the end there, getting hyped for. You know, getting hyped for LeBron James and getting him ready for that. You know, those those are some of the rivalries that that you know that I remember. What about the Kobe Kobe. stopper? You remember the Kobe stopper? It might have been before you worked with uh, with Kobe. Who was the Kobe stopper? He was a former teammate of mine. It was Ruben Patterson. I don't know if you remember it. Oh shit! It was early. Mid two thousands, I think he he was in Seattle at the time, Ruben, and he was a good one on one defender at times. Um, he one of those guys that would try to get up in you and slapping at the ball and whatever. But I think he anointed himself the, the Kobe stopper, and I believe ever since he did that, he he had Kobe put up some pretty pretty big numbers against him. But um, probably not something you want to put out in the media, right? Yeah, the only thing he stopped is they stopped you know they stopped payment on the fucking check. To be honest with you, probably about two days after two days after that statement. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I remember that. He said he was a dirty player. He said he was dirty as hell. And I remember, I remember Ruben in college at Cincinnati and at Portland when he played at Portland. But yeah, it's probably nothing you want to really advertise. It's like sort of saying you're the MJ stopper and then he'll drop 48 on you the next game. Exactly. Yeah. Probably not, not a fire you want to light. Next one goes back to our fact or fake news. So this is a, this is a good one. Hey, mate, love the podcast. Dissect Nikola Jokic's game for me. What the fuck am I even watching? The bloke looks like he doesn't even have coordination to brush his teeth, let alone be the MVP. What the fuck? That's Milan from Endeavor Hills, and I assume Milan is is from Serbian background because the Serbian name. So I assume he's a fan of Nikola Jokic's, but just wants to know, how is he getting it done with kind of his, his body and his athleticism? I think with Jokic, it, you know, his ability to score and his touch around the basket and his feel for scoring is legendary. It's Kevin McHale-like. I mean, his his ability to flip in hooks from anywhere, face up and score, put the ball on the floor, step throughs, and then, you you know, you could step out. He's shooting 40% from the three. He doesn't look like much, but then you put the basketball IQ with his ability to pass the ball, and now when you double him from any angle, he could spot up. He could spot players cutting. And he's almost impossible to God. Now, he's not a great athlete and he's not in, sometimes not in the greatest of shape, although this series is much better than his previous seasons. But he's just so tough. When you have a, a player that could score on the block, but also pass, that's another thing we're talking about with, you know, with the Steph thing, moving without the ball. Well, for young post players, learning not only how to score, but also 
how to read double teams and where they're coming from and be able to spot players spotting up or cutting uh, teammates off the ball. So it's almost impossible to guard him because he could score from anywhere on the block, low post, mid post, high post. He could step out and shoot threes, pick and pops. He can drive you, but he could also pass the ball. Like I said, he, he looks like 100 pounds of shit in a 50-pound bag. But, I mean, the guy is as effective as any player at that position that I've ever seen. I agree. His IQ is probably the biggest thing that gets him to where he's. He just knows how to play. He knows how to play the game. He's a bit pudgy at times, but he uses that to his advantage. He knows when he's got you sealed off on a side, he'll use his body and get a little finger roll up over you or he'll go up and under. And he's also one of those few bigs that is a high-scoring big but can also have a shitty offensive game as far as scoring, but still be so influential on what they do because he can pass the ball so well. Notorious as one of the best full court outlet passes off a defensive rebound. So if you watch Denver games, those guys fly when they know he's going to get a rebound because they're like, holy shit, I'm going to get a layup. And they just take off and he, he puts that thing on a dime quarterback style and guys get an easy layup. So when you play Denver, you know, like shit, like we get a shot up, we can't crash overboards, we got to get back because he's going to launch this thing and it's going to be on the money. So- I agree. It's just fun to watch. He's kind of the anti-modern-day athletic NBA player, and that's why it's that's why it's so cool. It's like you know, if you're a middle-aged balding man, you've still got a chance. You still got a chance when you watch. Yeah, Jokic play. Yeah, just have another donut, you fat fuck. Just keep scoring. Don't worry about you know. You could be middle. You could be middle-aged, balding, out of shape, and still score. Still, you know, still be an all-star level player. So fuck it. Have that third donut. And he's up there in MVP voting, so that'll be interesting to see how that goes with the end of season. So, next one, how are you finding the transition into the media space, if that's how you see it? Is chatting to your old work colleagues, such as teammates and media members, weird having been on the other side? Are you more mindful of how you try and source info, how you break your news for your supporters, or do you just go rogue? See what I did there. Sorry for the long-winded question. Hope it makes sense. That's from Ray on the Central Coast, New South Wales. And yeah, you're correct. I mean, we're trying not to sugarcoat any of this stuff. We want it to be real. We want it to be blunt. And I know that has its own niche with certain people. Some people don't like that. Some do. But it's true war stories about what I've experienced, what pros experience, and 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 what we see and have seen on a daily basis in the NBA. And that's, I think, the fun part of doing this. I don't see myself as the media as per se, even though that that is a space just because we're not really working for anyone. We can kind of creatively talk about what we want we put together the run sheet of what we talk about we don't have people telling us what we can and can't say so that's why i think this has been fun to this point and we'll continue to do it what do you think yeah i think for the most part just sort of being honest about things i don't think you want to be hack media that's trying to be clickbait and trying to just blast people for not you know just to blast them i think that you know i think we just try to you know speak the truth be respectful about it but just sort of be blunt and honest and don't hold back based on a sponsor or based on a particular person that's sort of funding a show or anything it's just like we are when we around the mavericks together we just bullshitted we talked and we talked the game we we, we didn't you know we didn't hold back anything and I think that's just the way you do it. And, you know, be respectful, of course, but just look, you've, you've played basketball for 20 years. I've, I've been around basketball for 25. I mean, just a lot of experience, a lot of stories. We've seen a lot. You've done a lot. So it's sort of a, a good space. We're not fake. We're not phony. We're not just playing up to a certain group of people or a, gr- a group of players or, you know, what have you. We just sort of see what we whatever we see we just talk about. Yeah. And much like some clickbaiters out there, we're not, which I can't stand, we're not those people that are like, this player sucks. He's horrible. And this player needs to do the, or he shouldn't even be in the league. We're not, we're not going to do that. Like, it's just, 
you know, whether we're controversial at times is a different story, but it's going to be from the honest, blunt truth. And it's not about like we're not trying to get clickbait by saying, you know, Steph Curry Curry's horrible compared to Kevin Durant. Like stuff like that just blows my mind. And you can you can see when people and media are doing it and why they're doing it because it creates debate online and back and forth and all that. But we're not really looking to do that. This is more like Pro said, more just a blunt, honest, unfiltered, no PR agency around us. And we hope everyone continues to listen and enjoy. Next one, hey Bogues, big fan, was lucky enough to have Ostar as a kid, which is cable television here, Pro. Watched plenty of Utah, University of Utah. Time Milwaukee Bucks games before I flew the coop and the parents and left the parents' house and pay TV was gone. Still got PTSD from that freak elbow injury. Loving the podcast, which has pretty much ruined every other NBA podcast for me. Can't stand the ex-player autofellatio or media members bullshit oh, wow. narrative obsession. Thank you. That's I think that's a compliment for us, bro. Yeah. Anyway, that leads me to my question for you and Pro. Over the years, there's been some egregious award decisions, particularly those voted on by media. Not least of these being DeAndre Jordan's 2015 first team or defense selection over yourself, the anchor of the league's best defense and best team, 67 wins. How do you view the current award system considering their impact on contacts? Who are some of the media members, voters whose opinions you actually respect? And three would be, through your careers, are there any year's awards that stand out, particularly heinous occasions of media narrative outweighing actual on-court performance? So I'll go through it real quick. Okay, so the one for me that really bothered me was I had a really good year Individually, 09, 2009, 2010, 16 and 10 at night, we weren't picked to do anything. We ended up making the playoffs. That was the year I did my elbow. So the All-Star game rolls around and we were we were around about, I think we were just above 500 at the time, right? And I end up, we end up going into the into the voting race and I just, I think they put Allen Iverson in at the time. I think he, I don't know who he was with, maybe Detroit. He was the last spot. So I was like, okay, they said, well, we, we, you know, basically got word through the team. I was pretty distraught about it. Like, you know, he had, their team had a better record than you. Like, so, you know, stay patient, young fella. That's the kind of messaging you got from, from NBA head office, right? Through, through the team. So I was like, cool, whatever. So that was the year I believe that Alan Iverson either got hurt or didn't want to play because he didn't think he basically got voted in by the fans because he was a very popular figure and, and didn't play in it. So then they had to do the injury replacement, right? So I'm like, shit, I'm good here. Like I'm getting in, I'm gonna make my first all-star game. And um they end up putting David Lee in, who was with the New York Knicks, and good friend of mine to this day, and I I, I laughed about it with him, and their record was like they were way below us. They were below 500. So I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, so they basically gave me the spiel about team record and wins and just stay patient, young fella. And then David was worthy as I was, no doubt, numbers-wise. But the, I think the New York thing definitely helped, being with the Knicks, being a bigger market, having a New York Knicks player in, in, in the All-Star game. So that was one that I was a little bit kind of pissed off about and, and nothing to do with D-Lee. It's, it's not his fault. Um, we laugh about it all the time. But that was one that I remember that really got to me. And as far as the other questions, I mean, the, the award system, like I've, I've said numerous times, I spoke about it on the House of Strauss as well. And Ethan mentioned it, that there are players out there. Jamal Crawford's one of them. He knows every media member's name, first name basis, goes up to them, treats them like human beings. Hello, how are you? How's your kids? All that kind of stuff. You know, people could argue, is that a strategy of his? Is it political? Is it fake? Who knows? Whatever, right? But he treats them with respect. And what do you know? He's, he's, he's always up there in six man of the year voting and he's won a few of them. So there's a human element in it. You know, someone like you look at KD, I made the argument that 
he'd almost have to average 40, 20, and 20 these days to get MVP votes from everybody because there's a lot of media that don't like him. Fuck, I just picked him as my MVP last week. Shit. <laughs> That's why I didn't You should have told him. me this, folks. That was what part of my fuck? strategy. I told you. I told you. I think LeBron lit the fire last season and 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 caught out the media. But yeah, going back on top, I, I just think that that's a play. You know, unfortunately, as much as we don't like to believe, the media are human beings, journalists and all that. At times, they don't seem like it, but they are human beings and um, they like a little bit of back and forth with players and just to be acknowledged as, as everyday people. So, that's a part of it. I don't really have any kind of say on actual media members and voters. I know there are a lot of guys that are pro certain players and, and even to the extent there are some media members that hang out with certain players. So, do the math. There is some conflict of interest there at times from voters, and, and but you're going to get that regardless of what you do and how you implement it. I don't know another way. Maybe you have a board of certain former NBA legends that only vote on it, but even that's going to be, it's going to have its biases. Like guards might vote more for guards because, you know, so there's always going to be a human element of, of, of people kind of voting not so much with what's out there, but with what they like. And that's just something you got to deal with, right? Yeah. The, the human element's definitely a big, a big part of it. And, you know, players, I think, especially the way they treat the media today, I think if you're just human to them at all, they're going to they're gonna really start liking you. They're going to like you a little bit more than maybe your stats stats say, and that could be a plan of yours, or that could just be you just being a good person. Who knows? But yeah, there's definitely human element in mistakes, um, but they, you know, they'll probably play favorites. Everybody does. They play favorites to some people. They're not going to get it right all the time, but they're going to vote sometimes if they're hot. Who you know who who talks to them more? You're gonna have some players that hate talking to media or they, or they disrespect versus some players that are just professional or they play the game and they know that they could they could sort of suck up to the media people and they're gonna at the end of the day they're gonna get more votes based on that. Just like anyone else in or any other job, they're gonna be really good people who who have a lot of integrity. There's gonna be people who are rats. There's gonna be people who do it right. There's gonna be people who don't pay attention to it and and don't really take their job seriously. So I mean, you have so many different factors in it, and you can never fix it, right? You can never, you can never get it perfect. It's never fix it. Politics, no. everything, right? It's like the human element. You know, humans are flawed, and we're assholes at times, and that's just something you got to deal with. Yeah, and then it's, it could be some corrupt shit too. And the, in the, you know, this could be, you know, somebody could be affiliated with an agency, or you never know. I mean, it, it, these days we're in fucking bizarre world. Up is down, down is up, right is left, left is right, like. You know, you never fucking know. You can never discount anything. You just got to deal with it. It's a shit show. It's a fucking circus. And you just got to fucking deal with the results. And sometimes you're going to, it'll, it'll come out right. And sometimes somebody's going to get fucked out of it. You just got to sort of take the good and the bad. That's life. Thanks, Jordan from Slade Point in Queensland. Number five, Cameron from Rayleigh, North Carolina. This this one's a good one. What percentage of NBA players do you suspect are on PEDs? (laughs) Or do you just need- fuck. Or do you just need hyperbaric chambers to keep yourself healthy? Whoa. Okay. So let's be honest. There's probably someone that's taking some stuff to 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 help them recover better or be better. That's probably not legal. Um, you'd be silly to think that every player in the NBA is completely clean of that. So I'm not going to say no one's. You know, everyone's clean. Everyone's perfect because there's guys with with injuries that might be bothering him for years. There's guys that are coming off ACLs. There's guys that are in contract years. Unfortunately, sometimes guys are going to do whatever they have to do to try and make sure that they can be on the court at their best, if not 110% from what they're taking. And I think um, as far as a percentage, I couldn't tell you. I, I'd, I'd, I'd be guessing, you know, 10%, 5%, who knows. Um, but there, is, there would be some players on it. 
just like there's, there's people that steal, there's people that cheat, there's people that, you know, there'll be someone someone doing that for sure. And, um, you know, the NBA does a pretty good job with testing, but who knows? There's probably some guy sliding by. As far as the hyperbaric chamber thing, completely different spectrums as far as PEDs to hyperbaric chambers. I mean, they, they, they help a little bit, but I mean, the thing in the NBA is these days, it's all about recovery. So, that's where the PEDs play a big part. They're not going to help your skill. They're not really going to overly help your strength, but they're going to help your recovery. So any niggles you have, anything bothering you, you just recover so much faster because your blood's, you know, your blood's spinning so much more to repair everything in your body. So that's where PEDs can help can help athletes. So, but as far as a number, I, I couldn't I couldn't put a figure on it, bro. Yeah, I mean, I just think that there's so much money involved in the sport that there's going to be a player or players that have that just sort of going to take any action necessary to keep on top of the game. Maybe it's an older player that that wants to ride out a couple of more minimum contracts for 2.7 million. It could be that that person that could get that one more really big deal and they're competitive and maybe they're hurt or maybe they got to do something with a, a bad knee or or something that they're, they're going to take something or look for somebody to, to, you know, look for a trainer that's working with them that can get them something. I'm not saying it's rampant. I'm not saying that it happens a lot, but you got to think with 450 players in the NBA that there's got to be somebody that's thinking outside the box that how am I going to get every competitive advantage that I can? But again, I have no, you know, I have no rec. I, I've never heard of one person that did it for sure or anything like that. I'm just, uh, it's just human nature. And it's just sort of the money's so much more these days. There's a lot at stake to keep that job for another year or two, you know, for another three million a year, five million a year, what, whatever you're going to make. People are going to do anything that just sort of stay in the limelight for that much longer. So I could see it happening. Uh, but, like like Bogue said, it's 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 something that it helps your recovery, and that's just sort of what it does. It doesn't. I'm not a science major or a doctor, but it doesn't make you like a incredible Hulk or anything. As far as the uh, the hyper, what what do they call it, Bogues? Hyper what? Hypergenic? Hyper donuts. Hyperbaric chamber. Hyperbaric. Yeah. I mean, I've heard of it. I, I I've actually dropped a few players off at summer league in Vegas. Actually, at a place that did it. But I don't really know what the fuck. I mean, besides apparently you know, it's supposed you look to like give you. A, it's supposed to it's similar to a float tank. It can help your recovery and just speed it all up. And and similar to float tank recovery, where you're one hour in, it's four hours sleep, that kind of stuff. So it just it's just supposed to speed up everything and help repair your body and tissue faster than you know what a, what an ice tub will or something like that. And then you get that um, that injection from Germany with that people started doing with their knee. I know Kobe did it. There's a few players that did it. I know PRP. Chandler Parsons did it. Yeah, and so usually in my in my experience with players that did it did that like they feel great, they work out great, and training camp it's great. But once they start like game cuts and and getting you know getting hit and contact and regular you know ups and downs of of the season, that they come down to normal real quick off that treatment. That yeah, they look good at first, but it sort of comes back to bite, you know, not bite them, but they just sort of come back to normal at some point. I tried that PRP shit in LA. Um, I didn't go to Germany. I did the one in LA. I think there's FDA rules around to so the health administration. I think in Germany, basically what they do is they take they take blood out of your body. They spin the blood with proteins. Um, I think in Germany they can do it for up to a week, and that's a difference. In the states, they were only allowed to spin your blood, I think, for a cup either six hours or twelve hours, or no more than a day. And then they basically mm-hmm. they basically reinject that that then spiked spiked protein with the blood in 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 a site to try and help repair it. Right. So I, I had a problem with my ankle um, after I broke it, where 
I was I was almost going to retire in 2012 because my ankle just it just wouldn't get better. It kept blowing up. So I tried PRP and it did fuck all for me. It almost made it worse. <laughs> it's just like, but I mean, a part of that could have been that. Would you get your doctor off of eBay? Nah, man, it's for the team. That shit was expensive too. I think it was like I think I did I think I did five injections over four days in LA, and it was I think it cost the team like 50k. It was like, but like I walked in this this place in LA, and it's like the dude's like, you know, doing. There was, there was like a bunch of Botox cheeks. He's doing people's, you know, all, it was just crazy. It was just one of those that typical LA Hollywood clinics and I'm just like, oh man, I don't think she's going to work and it, yeah, it didn't, didn't really do anything for me. But the only other guy I remember that got caught now that you mentioned it was um, Nick Calathus. Do you remember him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Nick Calathus. We had him in Dallas. The yeah. one guy, the one guy they bust yeah. for PEDs is a balding, slow- Yeah, he looks like- yeah, yeah. Man. and apparently he was taking something for his hair, and it had a or something like that, or he took something that had a had some sort of a, a steroid or something in it, and it spot and it, he got positive. But I'm just like, I always thought when he got caught, I was like, that's the guy you're gonna make an example of, like Nicolaitis, really? Of course, that's the guy you're gonna make an example of. Like, come on. Like I said, w- hey, when UCLA cheats, Utah State gets it, hundred <laughs> yeah, percent. But it was just like, <laughs> I was like, come on, man, because look, they're. I'm not going to name names, but we hear rumors about certain guys sometimes within the NBA fraternity that potentially could be on stuff and nothing ever comes of it. But then when that Nick Lathis scene came out, I was like, stop it, man. Like, that's that's the one guy. Yeah, he got two years for it, I think. And by the way, I saw what Nick looks like. Get his, He should get his fucking money back because that shit did not work. <laughs> <laughs> Might be a two-pay job. Thanks for your question there. Next one is, I have a question for you and I hope you answer on the podcast soon. When you played in the NBA, how frequent was it to be introduced to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists looking for your investment into a product or company? I'm curious. I remember one of KD's podcasts with Bill Simmons when he was a warrior that he had frequent business opportunities with up-and-coming ventures. I wanted to see if you had any experiences. Huge fan of the pod keep up the thought provoking pods mike from philadelphia pennsylvania so yeah you're right i mean the the thing with um entrepreneurs and venture capitalists someone taught me at a very young age even outside of that was wherever you're playing try to get to know the people that sit courtside at your games so if you play in dallas if you play in la wherever just go and say hello because a lot of times even if they're famous or well known they want to meet you as much as you want to meet them and they're a supporter of of what you're doing because there's they're essentially spending $10,000 a game to sit courtside. So if you're smart and you network with those guys, it can be really be beneficial. And a lot of the, the venture capitalist guys are, to some extent, can be fanboys and love the game and, and probably know it as well as you do. And it's kind of their release away from their job. So I, I thankfully got introduced to a lot of those guys through poker of all things. I got invited to a poker game in Silicon Valley, network with a lot of guys there who are friends of mine to this day. And I've then piggybacked on a lot of kind of deals that they've done with startups with second, third round investments in big companies. And every now and then they'll flick me, hey, we've got an allocation in this investment. Do you want to get involved? Yes or no? And it's as simple as that. So that's just from basic networking. And for me, it was just funny that the way it worked out was because of my love of poker, I ended up ended up meeting a lot of kind of influential people. But the smart players do a really good job of it. There are some players that don't feel confident being in that forum that don't bother doing it, but um, you can definitely get access to some, some pretty important people. Yeah. I mean, the... It- you get so many p- people that are millionaires and billionaires that sit courtside that, you know, you think are really like professional, really high ranking people that like are serious and sort of like very disciplined. But when they're around NBA players, they're like schoolgirls. 
And no, no offense to them. It's just sort of how they are. And they want to be around you. They want to get in deals with you. They want to make you money. Now, some want to r- rip you off and take your money too. Don't get me wrong. There are some scan- scandalous people that, that sit in those seats as well. But for the most part, if players like just like add an extra couple of hours to their day and just get to meet people and get to know people. Those guys want to put you in deals. They want to put, they want to be seen with you. They're just that I've seen it all the time. I saw it at Michael Jordan's camp. There were people, there were millionaires that would come back and just want to hang around with Michael or hang around with players that just want like, just their fan. Just time, right? Yeah. And then especially if they have kids too, you know, like if oh, you yeah. just give their kid a high five sitting courtside, like you're in, <laughs> like they'll, they'll do anything for you. Yeah. And then when you're done playing, you can make so much money and you could just continue to like, they'll just keep throwing you in deals because they don't, they can't get close to NBA players. They can get close to CEOs all over the world, but they can't get close to NBA players for one reason or another. And I tell any player to just do that. You know, even if you don't feel comfortable, just be nice and they're going to want to throw you in something and they want they want to help you just to be around you, just to brag that they know somebody. Now, like I said, some people might be, you know, want to do the other the other thing, but it's it's unbelievable with some of these players like in like even not even NBA, like college folks. I don't know if you ever heard of this. Yeah. Yep. So, well, in Kentucky, when you're done playing in Kentucky or you come out for the draft, they do this thing called bondstorming tours where, like, you go around for a month and, like, all the seniors and or players that enter in the draft, they play in these exhibition games. You make an extra 150000 minimum for, like, a four-week to six-week deal because all these boosters come in these games. They sign cards. They do this. They do that. And these guys, some like Anthony Davis or guys like that could end up making almost a half a million bucks by just doing all these card, like these signings and these these exhibition games just for, like, six weeks. And like these people want to be around athletes and they could set you up for the rest of your life. But you just have to like some players just think that they're going to play. They're going to make their money from their from like some endorsement money, whatever money in their contracts, their shoe money, maybe. But they don't understand that so many of these other people that sit at games that are real estate guys that make millions of dollars for the last 20 years and that will be continuously making money. They could put you in deals venture capitalists or or put you in commercials or put you in this real estate deal or put you in this deal that really just want to make you money and they'll do anything they that that impossible to do that and i just don't think enough players take advantage of that yeah and even if it's not from an investment point of view where you're actually investing with them they're a great resource to ask questions to and that's what i used a lot of i still do to this day they're, they're the smartest people in the world when it comes to dissecting a company a stock what's what's moving i just had a friend recently say get more bitcoin and i did right before the the spike <laughs> probably about three months ago because they're that's what they do on a daily basis so i would sometimes ask them probably baby down dumb questions that a high school kid would ask but they're happy to answer and help you and you also can't be afraid of looking like a fool too like you you know they're the smartest people in the world in their field much like they'd probably ask you a basketball question sometimes or you'd be like, what? Like, that's that's an easy answer. That's this, you know? So, it works both ways. And, and like you said, if, if you can utilize that while you're playing, 
I mean, and at the end of the day, they're part of your salary because they're paying, they're the ones paying 10, 15 grand. Some of those staple center seats, you know, there were rumors for our finals game that some of the seats were going for 50, 60, 70 grand a seat courtside for a finals game, you know, and they're essentially contributing to our salary, but also like like Pro said, they, they want to meet you and be around you and rub shoulders with you, which they probably don't get an opportunity to do in everyday life. So good question. Thank you for that one. We're going to go on a story time. So kind of transition into, we're going to talk about the dumbest purchases. So your <laughs> your purchases probably won't be as grand as an NBA players, but we're going to talk about the dumbest purchases you've you've seen in the NBA from from a player or a coach, and then I'll I'll give you one that um that I I kind of stupidly purchased. So we'll let you go first. What do you got for us? I'm going to protect the player's name. Sometimes I could be a nice guy, but the story is unfucking believable. It's unbelievable. If that's all right, yeah, I'm not breaking protocol, right. Bogues. Isn't it? That's All right. right. So this player, this player was going to go. Uh, he played for the Knicks, and the pl- and they have their uh, training camp in South Carolina, and he was going to get there a little late. He had some tests he had to do in New York before he left to go to South Carolina. So he wanted to buy a watch for a hundred thousand, and he wanted to buy this watch. He had to call his financial guy. The financial guy wired him the money because he didn't have it. So he wired into his account. Was going to buy it. The watch guy said, "Hey, wait a minute. You're going to South Carolina, right?" And he goes, "Yeah." He goes, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Because we don't have a store in South Carolina, I could, sh- you could buy it, ship it, and you won't, you, won't, you won't take it to South Carolina tonight, but it will be there in your room tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., FedEx, and you don't have to pay taxes on it, 15000 bucks. You don't have to pay taxes on it. They go, no, nah, the, the player goes, no, nah, fuck it. No, I want to wear it out. So the coach that was with him was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Do you understand it's like six o'clock right now? There's a limo outside. We're just waiting for this result. We're going to go to the fucking plane. You're going to walk off the plane. No one's going to see you because it's a private airport. You're going to go to your hotel room, go to sleep. Not one person's going to see you with the fucking watch. And then tomorrow, you're going to get the watch back at the room and you're going to save yourself 15000 Yeah, He goes, now nah, wrap that shit up. <laughs> the fucking guy bought a $100,000 watch, paid fifteen more in taxes where he wanted to save by getting it FedEx the next fucking day. Yeah, and that's all about, I want it It was now. the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my life. $15,000. Yeah, just burnt, like lit on fire. Unbelievable. I mean, yeah, I've, I've seen plenty of those. Go ahead. I guess the craziest one I've heard well, just the funniest one for me was Darko Milicic. Um, he gets he gets drafted to Detroit. Now, for people that haven't been to the Midwest of the US, so Cleveland, Detroit, Milwaukee, even where I was, when you go there in the summer, it is beautiful. That Lake Michigan is sparkling. I thought I was almost near the – I was like, when I got to Milwaukee first, I thought, um, wait, hang on a second, I'm not near the ocean. I'm I'm central, right? And they're like, yeah, no, that's a lake. I'm like, shit, because it's, it's a big lake. It looks like an ocean, right? So – yeah, Darko gets there apparently. This is from a from a, a teammate I played with that played with him and sees a beautiful lake and he decides, oh man, I'm gonna I want to get a yacht. So he goes down, sees all the boats in the water, and he had his I think he had his boys with him at that time from from Serbia that came and lived with him. So not only does he buy one one yacht, he buys two yachts, so his boy can be in the other one. And then by the time they wrap up the deal, they they get the boat cleaned out, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. The fucking lake freezes. <laughs> so he had no idea that it snows in the lake. Basically, the lake is out of action for what six months, seven months a year, probably. You know, November around yeah. about October, November. You you need to take literally take the boat out with a crane, 
and then store it at these docks. They've got like elevated areas for boats where they just store it for the whole winter and then it probably goes back in the water around April or May. No idea. So, the whole time he's in Detroit during the NBA season, he can't use a boat and then he goes back to Serbia in off season. So, he's not there in the summer anyway. So, that was one stupid one. So, he ended up, he ended up selling it back to whoever he bought it for for like pennies on the dollar because they just knew like guy had no idea about boats. And the other thing Darko used to do apparently was he lived he lived in an apartment, but he bought he bought a house in a subdivision that was just used as a party house. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, in Detroit, I think last call is 1.30 or 2 a.m., basically clubs close and everyone would just go to Darko's house. So, I had, a, I had a friend of mine who was a club promoter in Detroit back in the day. Um, he's not there anymore, but he was involved in that scene. He told him the story. He's like- the man Darko put in. He had like the whole basement was fit out with smoke machines. He had disco lights in there. <laughs> he was basically just running a, a rogue. We like rogue. He was running a rogue nightclub from his house that was for the after party once the club's closed and just just dropped a mill on, on a house for that. Didn't live there. Um, and yeah, that that was when I heard those things, I was especially the boat thing, like <laughs> dude couldn't even use the two yachts that he bought. Just classic NBA. Unbelievable, man. Those fu- fucking international players, boy. You think they're like choir boys. I, I doubt that. <laughs> oh, doubt Darko that was a wild one now. I've been with some international yeah. players, but Darko was – I've heard some stories about yeah. him. Pekovic was wild too. Oh, yeah. The Balkan guys could definitely have some fun. But my, my dumbest purchase, I really didn't have anything really stupid. The, the dumbest thing I did, I spoke about it on the car pod. I bought a um, Pontiac GTO, the newer one, two-door, equivalent to the Australian Holden Monaro. So, it was kind of a childhood dream car. I souped it up with like I put a sound system in there that was like would blow the windows out of a four-bedroom house like an idiot. You know, <laughs> you, you could never turn the volume up past five because like five subwoofers, just an idiot, right? Put some rims on it and then I got the, I got the windows tinted limousine tint like a, like an absolute idiot right so who, who am I to know like first got some money I can soup up a car so I'm, I'm driving around in, in Milwaukee Wisconsin and it's minus whatever the fuck guess a number and it's minus that pretty much all winter and Oof. I had to whenever I got to a stop sign I had to put my windows down to see <laughs> <laughs> to see if of course, a fucking car. And I'm like, you absolute idiot! Like, what are you doing? Like, I just, and it was, it got to a point where I, I couldn't drive it anywhere because it was so low. There's potholes everywhere because of the salt and the snow in Milwaukee. So it was like a pain in the ass to drive. And then, yeah, every intersection, man, I had to put my windows down. So then I'm like, man, this this car's pointless. It's dangerous. I'm gonna have an accident. So that was my dumbest purchase, it, and it wasn't too crazy because the car cost me, I think it was about 30, 40 k brand new. With all the work I did to it, it probably owed me sixty, and I think I moved it on for about forty five about two years later but that was up there with just a stupid purchase that a young idiot would make andrew bogut star starring in the new movie the fucked and the furious starring andrew bogut <laughs> and his fucking tinted out pipmobile i wasn't too pimpy it, it looked good at the time until yeah practicality set in where you're like fuck this is a car it's supposed to drive like but i can't really drive it like if, if the sunset like i can't take it out if it's dark <laughs> fan fucking tastic man time to sell it that wraps it up man thanks me a good one we took a little two week hiatus so hope everyone enjoyed the break Rogue Bogues and all the social media forums Rogue Bogues on YouTube Twitter Facebook at Hoop Consultants all the social media forums you got a Facebook pro or is it just Insta and Twitter yeah I got Facebook Hoop Consultants they can find me it's not your face on it though is it no, thank God, no. Just the uh, the code word is cheeseburger. So just if they ask you for a password, it's cheeseburger. All right, bro. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Folks, thanks, brother.